The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, uh, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty. The Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment. And with that, it was over. For the second time in little more than a year, Donald Trump was acquitted in an impeachment trial in the United States Senate. This time by a vote of 57 guilty, 43 not guilty, 10 short of the magical 67 needed for conviction. Although expected, the final day was a crushing anti-climax, coming after a wild morning in which the Senate first voted to allow the calling of witnesses, and then after a furious behind-the-scenes debate and a veritable freakout about what that could mean, the whole idea of developing actual new and potentially damning new evidence was scrapped. The decision to effectively punt on the witness question will be debated for years, but it hardly means that Trump's legal troubles are over. We'll discuss the trial and what can still be in store for the former president with veteran litigator turned legal pundit George Conway on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined for his second appearance on Skullduggery after several years of absence, the aforementioned Mr. Conway. Welcome back to Skullduggery. I'm happy to be back. Thank you for having me. So I got to say, what a wild, unexpected end to this trial. We all got very excited this morning uh, when the Senate actually voted to allow the calling of witnesses, which opened the door to God knows what, but certainly some rather key evidence, witness testimony that could shed a lot of light. And then they punt. Can we just step back for a moment, yeah. Isakoff, and sure. just uh, a historic impeachment vote just occurred. Can we just yeah. like take stock of what happened before we I dive into- I said the guy got acquitted. I want to hear what Conway has to say. He, You know, he has All been- right, Conway, go. Take it away. Your, your take on the day's developments. Oh, I have many takes. I mean, I didn't come into the day- hoping for very much, given the tenor of the Republican senator's statements. I was a little I was a little bit gratified that seven of them did vote for conviction. But overall, I just feel a profound sadness and disappointment. I think uh, Representative Raskin at a number of times really put the question best. I mean, if this is not impeachable, if this is not something that warrants a conviction, you know, what does? What does? And I really think now that, you know, having seen this man been acquitted twice in the span of 13 months 
or 12 months and a couple of weeks in cases where the evidence was overwhelming against him. And yet there were no witnesses and nobody wanted to. And, and, and there was just an in either failure trial. in either trial. Right. Basically, the impeachment mechanism doesn't work for anybody but federal judges. I mean, right. We basically have this mechanism that the framers you know, thought a lot about, but were actually they didn't think as much about it as you might have thought. That's that's actually not true. They, they, they spent a few days thinking about it. Um, but they really thought, you know, they did think it was important and they carefully crafted it. They thought that the Senate would be the right body because it has some political responsibility and it's the cooler of the two branches of government. And they thought, you know, in the case of a sitting president, they put the chief justice in, you know, one of the things that they didn't foresee. And we know that with respect to the Electoral College, which immediately um, fell apart in 1800, they didn't foresee the degree of partisanship that would naturally come about. And so they created a mechanism for removing a wayward uh, criminal president that basically today does not work. It has never worked. George, is there, well, first of all, does there need to be a conversation about this? Any way of reforming our system so that presidents who engage in this kind of conduct can be held accountable uh, outside of uh, the criminal justice system? I mean, are there are there things that can be done? No, they're, they're really, they're, I mean, you could, you know, I think if I could write something and enact it into law, into the Constitution, it would require a constitutional amendment. You know, I'd, I'd do something about the impeachment mechanism and change it somehow. Either change the body, you know, create maybe a special court of impeachment that actually consists of a group of life tenure judges who are selected in some neutral fashion or maybe reduce the number of votes required for conviction, although that, you know, maybe reduce it to 60, but that wouldn't have helped in either impeachment last year or this year. But the problem is that's all, you know, that's just, that's just fantasy because there's, I don't think there's a way to get two thirds of both houses of Congress and three quarters of the States to enact a constitutional amendment these days. Okay. Look, I, I appreciate the cosmic constitutional uh, theory here and how we could uh, reform our country, but let, can we talk about the events of today? <laughs> because I thought they were extraordinary. I thought when the Senate voted to allow witnesses um, that, uh, you know, some of the most damning, stuff about Trump's conduct could have been developed, right? And take it beyond the press reports that were out there. Now- it, Yeah, I got fooled too. Yeah. Now the narrow, you know, one witness that Jamie Raskin asked for, Congresswoman Herrera Butler, who put out a statement last night about her conversation with uh, House Minority Leader McCarthy's account of his conversation with Trump, opened the door. I, you know, frankly, she was a hearsay witness. The guy you want to hear from is McCarthy, of course, but she presumably had notes. She made reference to McCarthy having recounted this conversation with Trump in which McCarthy is pleading with Trump that day to call off the mob. And Trump is dismissing it saying, you know, uh, you obviously don't 
care as much about the election as these people do, as his rioters did. That That's incredibly important evidence about Trump's state of mind, about how Trump viewed what was going on inside the Capitol. And I want to hear it. And I think the American public wanted to hear it. And it would be, you know, in any real trial, absolutely uh, essential. No? Yeah. And I think it was more than that, too. I think what was enticing about it for those of us who actually wanted to hear evidence was that it could open the door to more evidence. Butler opening the door to McCarthy, opening the door to other people who spoke to the president that day or who spoke to people who spoke to the president. You know, maybe maybe the, all of a sudden the, the floodgates would come open, but it, it wasn't to be. And I think that was exactly... Actually, the, the fear that the floodgates would come open was exactly what killed it. Both the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate didn't want this to happen. I mean, I, uh, apparently the Republicans were threatening to basically hold down, hold up the Senate if the trial kept going on. And the Democrats, you know, they, they, there's other business that they want to do. I don't know. I'm having trouble getting my head around the fact that, you know, this was conduct serious enough to take the very extreme grave step of impeaching the guy and holding a trial in the Senate, but it's not grave and serious enough to actually get all the facts that could, you know. uh, I'm with you, Mike. And precisely because that was the case, it should have been a foregone conclusion before today that there would be witnesses of very various sorts, not just this congresswoman from Washington who popped up on CNN in a CNN report the night before the trial was to come to a close. There should have been witness lists on both sides. And that was the sort of the interesting thing about what happened today. There are two things about trials that make them really interesting. One is live witnesses. And the second is you don't know how you don't know what's going to happen. There's a certain unpredictability to it. Now, we weren't having witnesses, but all of a sudden we had the unpredictable possibility of actually having witnesses and a real trial. But then, no, they didn't want to have a real trial. They never wanted to have a real trial in the Senate. Yeah, I, I think that is um, the story that may come out at some point. I cannot imagine that Jamie Raskin and the other managers did not want to have witnesses. You know, Look, I mean, two areas. One is so much of their case rightfully, was about the the victims of the violence, the law enforcement officers, the Capitol Police, uh, that one Capitol Police officer being squeezed in that door, that agonizing pain that he was experiencing. And yet, you know, the the fact that there were none of these uh, people actually testifying live, which would have added so much drama and humanity to their case, I think was was surprising. And then the other is Pence, the whole Pence story. Can I give you a, a little reporting on that front? Reporting hey, um, oh, uh, over punditry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. During news, news the period after the uh, the vote, I checked in with a uh, source close to Short, Mark Short, the chief of staff. Mark Short, the chief of staff of Mike Pence, who was with him that entire day when Pence gets ushered out by the Secret Service for his own protection while the mob is around, Short was with him. And this source told me that 
Short now has, and this, these are quotes, real hatred and disrespect for Trump. January 6th pushed him over the edge and was his breaking point. So you want a witness? Mark Short was there. He was with the vice president. There are a lot of people like that. There were people who resigned from the White House yeah. um, after that. And, and, you know, and we already knew these people were there because, I mean, your reporting is great. It's very interesting. Thank you very much, Michael. <laughs> but we have seen, you know, blind quotes from Pence's people since January 6th, including the last 24 hours. You know, in the last 24 hours, there, was, there were people close to Pence basically telling the press Trump's lawyers are lying. Lying about the fact that Pence, that he was unaware of the danger that Pence was in that day, his own vice president. No, there were there were plenty of people unloading um, on Trump, but they just they just feared doing it publicly for whatever reason, because they want a future in Republican politics or they fear dividing the party or they want to be able to walk through an airport without people screaming at them if they come, you know, if they visit, I don't know, South Carolina or somewhere. So that's where we are. I mean, we have a lot of people who were associated with the administration who actually agree that Trump did something reprehensible. Just before I was listening to the floor speech that Senator McConnell was giving immediately after the acquittal. And he basically was saying that what Trump did was reprehensible and that he was a disgrace. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people out there who feel like Mark Short. And, you know, you have to wonder that if this had been a secret ballot, whether whether there would have been 10 more votes to convict, I'll bet there, I'll bet you there would have been. Not, not that you could ever actually have a secret ballot on the conviction of no, you couldn't. Right, they, 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 all you these, couldn't it, all but, these people would have to account and, and explain where they were to their constituents. Yeah, and that's why they all wanted to hide behind this weak, I'm not going to say bullshit. It's not, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's an argument to be made that's not complete bullshit. It's wrong. But this jurisdictional argument that says yeah. that you can't try a former Official. Well, the Constitution is not explicit. Right. On the it, it, there's an argument to be made. If you hired me <laughs> as a lawyer to make the, that legal argument, I would not tell you that I would be embarrassed to make it. I would make it. I, I think if I was a judge, I would decide against it. If I were a senator, I would have decided against it. Um, but it's not. It wasn't completely frivolous. And, but yet 40 some odd of them out of 50 were desperate. Yeah. Look for a way out that enabled them to say, look, I, I, I didn't endorse what Trump did that day. I just thought we didn't have the power to convict him once he left office. George, uh, you know, I know you're disappointed uh, in this result and that you said it's a sad day. But do you take any solace uh, in the fact that, I mean, this is the most bipartisan impeachment uh, ever, Seven Republicans voted to convict a president of their own party. Richard Burr, which nobody was expecting. Richard Burr, which was a surprise, although uh, he is retiring. John Cassidy. Mitt Romney, who has the Mm -hmm. distinction of having voted to convict a uh, 
president of his own party, not once but twice, happens to be the same president. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a mixed feelings. I mean, on, on one hand, when I look at the sunny side of it, there were more people, more Republicans this year who voted either to impeach or to convict a president of their own party than have, has ever done that in the history of the United States of America through four presidential impeachments. And that's, wow, that's, that's you know, that's looking on the bright side. Um, it, and, and, and it ended up to be more than I expected going into today. That said, this guy tried to end constitutional democracy in the United States of America and fomented violence to achieve that. So the fact that we didn't get 67 votes to not to remove him from office even, but to say, hey, this guy shouldn't be commissioner of anything that bears a federal title uh, ever again. You know, it's pretty sad. You know, but let's remember, he is not scot-free. <laughs> He's going to have legal troubles for quite some time. A lot of people have focused on Cyrus Vance, the Manhattan district attorney who's been investigating Trump's finances for some time. Uh, that strikes me as a long, complex uh, case that uh, could go any which way. We really don't know. But the one that I think is the most serious problem he's got right now is this Fulton County uh, yes. district, district attorney, attorney Willis, Willis, whose name is going to be a household name. I mean, I I, I did write something on this. I wrote 5,021 words in the Washington Post where I went through all of the principal potential federal crimes that Trump could be charged with and argued that we don't need just one special prosecutor. We need three or four. And Merrick Garland, when he becomes attorney general, which I hope is soon, should get, get cracking on that. And one of the one of the things but that we I don't know, this is not a federal crime. She's no, going no, no, she's, to she's prosecute him on a state crime. But I talked about that. And there are the parallel state and federal offenses. And the state crime is, is pretty simple. I mean, if you, you know, try to cause someone to create fake votes in an election, that's election fraud or conspiracy to commit election fraud if you agree with someone to do it. I mean, even an attempt to do it is a crime. And it's clear as day. The language is very, very clear. And I think um, the district attorney from Fulton County, who's announced that she is conducting an investigation, went on MSNBC, I think the Rachel Maddow show the other night, mm -hmm. and she made the very cogent point that calling up the Secretary of State of Georgia and asking for exactly one more vote than you need shows <laughs> yeah. quite a consciousness of what you are trying to do. Yeah. To me, look, the, you know, what the, the, if you were Trump's defense lawyer, you would point to late in the conversation, he says something along the lines of all I want is the truth. Right. And, and, and that's what you would hang it on. But right. then you look at the actual 
words that came before it, in which he is twice referencing this 11,780 votes, which he's only referencing because that's what he would need to carry the state. And he says, can you find me those votes? And and he says, give me a break. It's just 11,780 votes. Give me a break. And then he, and he's making these wild accusations, just throwing them out there. And they're saying, no, sir, that that that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And the fact of the matter is, if you really conducted a full investigation, you'd have lots of people telling him that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And there may be conversations that he had with some of his aides that could come out that I think would be damning on that. I think he said, I think he has admitted it has been reported and I have heard he has admitted at times privately that he lost the election and that he knows he lost the election. So, you know, I think in his own mind, his view is one way or the other, he got screwed and he doesn't care. So he's willing to make him because that's the way a guy like him always thinks. Maybe they changed the rules so that more people could vote against me. Well, fine. I'm just going to make I'm just going to attack the result and I'll make every accusation I can of fraud that I can, whether or not I have my lawyers tell me I have evidence, because that's what these bad people would do to me. I mean, that's the way a malignant narcissist like a Donald Trump would think. And he, you know, and in his mind, he doesn't necessarily he doesn't make a distinction between what's what's true and what's false that he sticks to and what's it's a jumble of fantasy, falsehood, whatever it takes for him to say at a given moment to get what he wants. And that's, um, you know, but the fact is he should he should have he knew and should have known the truth. And, And let's remember that it's not just that one phone call. There's it's been reported he made 18 attempts to get through to Raffensperger. He spoke to a, he spoke Secretary to one of the State. investigators, the elections uh, um, yeah, investigators, right. he, he, who he said, you need to find the fraud. Right. He, he, the governor. This Fannie Willis uh, DA seems formidable. And she's talking about, you know, conspiracy, racketeering. I think she actually brought a, a novel racketeering case involving Georgia educators. So but I guess. On the one hand, you have all of these investigations and legal problems swirling around Donald Trump. On the other hand, there is no other hand. Well, no. Well, the other hand is that he is, you know, still in some ways the head of the Republican Party and 75 million people voted for him. And we've seen, you know, the fealty that Republican office holders at all levels uh, have for Donald Trump. I, I so, don't think there are going to be too many Republicans on that Fulton County jury. No, 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 no. I'm not talking him. about. I'm talking about his political power that Donald Trump yeah, still the political, has. Well, the political power, but that didn't help him in the sixty odd litigations that he and his allies engaged in to contest the election results. They lost every single one of them except for one, and the one that they won was on a dinky little point about how many days voters had to correct absentee ballot information on the envelope. That's it. That's the only thing they won. They lost in courts from 
Pennsylvania to Nevada. They lost before Democratic judges and Republican judges. They lost in trial courts. They lost in appellate courts. And they lost in the Supreme Court of the United States. Do you know there's a wonderful, delicious irony about the fact that we are having this conversation with you in particular? Because among the actions that Trump took in his relentless conspiracy to try to overturn the election was conniving with the assistant chief of the civil division of the Justice Department to get him to take over the Justice Department. Not the assistant, the acting chief. The the acting chief chief of the civil division, because everybody else after Barr quit and the, um, the, the acting AG, Jeffrey Rosen, and his deputy wouldn't touch these bogus cases at all. Trump finds the acting chief of the civil division. And as I recall it, And I believe we discussed this the last time you were on Skullduggery. You were offered the job. You, George Conway, were offered the job of of being Donald Trump's chief of the civil division. Yeah. The last time I was here, you got me in trouble because I said that the administration was a shit show in a dumpster fire. And then your publicists immediately put that out like five minutes later. Well, right, of course. Right, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good publicist. But just think, if you had taken the job, you could have been the attorney general who carried Donald Trump's banner into the Supreme Court uh, to overturn the election. I would have told him to fuck himself. <laughs> okay, so here's the question. I would have never lasted. I mean, Did you know. anybody do that? Did anybody tell him to go fuck himself? You're full of shit, Mr. President. This is ridiculous. What they did, right? The the, the acting attorney general, Rosen, said this is ridiculous. They went over to the White House and had it out. He said it was ridiculous. And and Rosen and a couple of the other people. And Barr, they told him it was bullshit. Barr told him it was bullshit. Yeah, yeah. But then he immediately started working on people in the Justice Department and somehow through some Pennsylvania member of Congress got hooked into talking with this guy who was acting assistant attorney general for the civil division and who had been running the environmental division. And then, you know, he all of a sudden this guy's written some kind of or, or received and decided to peddle some kind of a legal complaint that, that, the, that the Justice Department would file. And then everybody in the Justice Department who was still left said, you can't do this. There's no legal basis. There's no factual basis to do this. The United States government doesn't even have standing to do this. And I think they ran it by acting Attorney General Rosen and other people in the Justice Department. I think acting Solicitor General uh, Jeffrey Wall. And they all said, this is insane. And then they had, you know, they basically, you know, they had it out at the White House. And then they entered into basically a suicide pact, you know, a political suicide pact. Right. We're, we're all Jeffrey like, Clark was the name of the guy, by the way. Yeah. Right, Jeffrey Bossert Clark. And then the rest of them basically said, OK, if 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 they tell us to do this, we're all going to resign. So so as you look at the legal landscape facing Trump, I mean, give us your a sense of how these play out, um, where he's most vulnerable, and um, who the hell would he ever get to defend him is another question. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the two places he's most vulnerable right now are Georgia, for the reasons that you think, uh, Mike. I think he's potentially exposed in New York because New York – 
they're running through the business. And yeah, I know you're saying, well, the appraisals and, you know, I mean, they're, they're looking into whether or not he appraised his properties at inflated values for purposes of getting loans and low values for purposes of paying taxes and things like that. And I know you're skeptical that that could amount to charges. But when once you get prosecutors rummaging around in the business, a private business like that, particularly that kind of business, um, all they need to do is find a couple of things that they can explain to a jury. They don't have to put you know, the entire business on trial for a number of years. They just have to find something that's you know, relatively simple. And you know, this guy cuts corners. He gets people to break rules for him. He puts pressure on them relentlessly until they do what he wants. Meanwhile, the, the, you, the, the, I'm talking about the district attorney's office in Manhattan, New York County, Cyrus Vance. You know, they, according to the Washington Post a few weeks ago or a couple, month or two ago, they hired a forensic accounting firm called FTI, which is the kind of firm when, you know, when I was in private practice doing high-end civil litigation, you know, we, we'd pay a lot of money to hire a firm like that to crunch numbers for us and to act as expert witnesses in centimillion-dollar litigations. The fact that the district attorney's office, a public prosecutor, is forking out that kind of money for a high-end financial expert, they're doing something. They're up to something there that they're heavily invested in. Yeah, look, I mean, my my skepticism is is only that, um, you know, to bring a charge against Trump personally, you need an insider witness who can be there with him, who can yeah, say, and, and there are we told you, Mr. Trump, you can't do this. And he says, we do it anyway or whatever. And right now, the only guy we know of who fits that category is Michael Cohen, who's uh, a convicted you know, there perjurer. Potential. Right. There are potential, other potential people. It's not a big organization. You know, there's the CFO of the Trump organization, whose name has been in the news every so often over Weisenberg, the four years. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if they find something that the company has done that calls into question one individual's conduct, like the CFO, who would be most likely to be the one to have knowledge, well, how does that person minimize their potential liability. We don't know. We don't know what's behind the curtain. All we do know is that there's a lot, there's a lot of rustling behind the curtain. These the, the prosecutors have interviewed many people at Deutsche Bank, which was the principal and frankly, at the end of the day, the only lender to the Trump organization. And they've interviewed a lot of people at Aon, which was the Trump organization's insurance broker. And as as you know, as an investigative reporter, when that kind of investigation goes on, that means that a lot of witnesses who have a lot of lawyers working for them all know some piece of the investigation. And these lawyers share information and they get a sense of how serious the investigation is, which is why you see it's not because the, it usually doesn't come from the prosecutors, actually. That's why you see these press reports and something something heavy duty is going on. Now, does it result in charges against the against the Trump organization or you know, Trump personally, who knows? 
So, George, you have been um, deeply and passionately involved in the sort of the battle of ideas um, over the last, you know, most of the last four years, I guess, starting quietly and then um, getting much more Less vocal <laughs> on Twitter, but uh, but also uh, writing in the Washington Post and elsewhere. Now, Donald Trump's just been acquitted. Impeachment is over. He obviously lost an election. He is battling on many legal fronts. So what what does George Conway do um, going forward? I mean, are you going to continue this fight? And if so, in what form? Or are you moving on to to other important battles? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm kind of tired of all this, (laughs) to tell you the truth. I'm kind of... As I said, I tweeted today, like, you know, I'm just sick of everybody now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think, um, you know, I want to find something else to do, maybe do a little writing, but I don't think I want to be a full-time writer. And, and I want to find something creative and interesting to do. And I don't really feel like it's, I, I want to be a full-time rabble rouser or political type. I've, I've, I've kind of had enough of, of that. Along those lines, um, we do have to ask you, you were one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, which yes. does seem to be imploding at the yes, moment it is. after uh, revelations that one of your fellow founders, John Weaver, was uh, sexually uh, uh harassing uh, young boys via Twitter. Um, Seems to be some questions about when Lincoln Project folks learned about that. Uh, And then also questions about uh, where all the money was going. There was quite a bit that was raised to run anti-Trump ads, and it seems to have gone into the consulting firms of the various founders. Um, Now, you dropped out of the Lincoln Project yeah, back in back in last August, but even before then, I mean, my I had I had kind of an odd role at the Lincoln Project because you know I was the kind of the oddball in it. I was the non-political consultant, and I you know, and I admit, I mean, my you know, my attraction to them was that I could get them some attention, and in part because my wife worked at the White House, and part because you know, and and um. I was sort of out there as a major critic of Trump. So, you know, I, you know, they, they asked me to join them back in November or December of 2019. And I was all too happy to, because I wanted, I was looking for ways to try to make a difference. And, you know, I, 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 it was hard for me to sort of be involved functionally with them because they, they, they knew what they were doing. These were the political consultants. And I didn't, I didn't know them all that well. I kind of knew Rick Wilson. Um, I didn't know Weaver at all or Schmidt. I got to know Reed Galen and um, you know, I had no idea about Weaver. I mean, the first time I ever heard anything weird about Weaver was way after the election when I heard kind of, you know, after I was out of the Lincoln Project, I heard that he had some kind of thing where he would hit on people, um, uh, hit on men, even though he was a married, um, heterosexually married male. And, you know, I heard it was pretty weird. And I heard, you know, that's what I heard. I didn't hear that he was hitting on people within the Lincoln Project at that time. Certainly didn't hear that he was hitting on anybody who was underage, 
you know, it was just one of those things like, oh, you hear this, gee, that's kind of weird. And then, you know, late in January, more, more stuff started coming out. So from what you've been able to pick up from what you know at this point, I mean, were, was this brought to the attention of folks? That's the, that's what's been reported. I mean, there are, there's, I think some people say that they did do that. I gather um, I've seen, we see that in the press reports. I've heard that um, over the past couple of weeks privately. And then I hear the opposite. Um, I have to say, you know, the denials didn't make, you know, the, uh, you, you, you're an investigative reporter and I'm a lawyer and you can read the denials. They were, they were, they were, they were a little bit squishy around the edges and kind of made me wonder. And maybe there's a dispute about what exactly people were told and when I, I, I can't, I, I can't resolve it. And God help me. I, you couldn't pay me money to be the one to try to resolve it. I do think, as I've said on Twitter, that if there are people who worked at the Lincoln Project, young men who have, you know, who felt that they were not listened to, who have facts to bring to bear about what they said or what Weaver did to them, they should be able to speak out, you know, without regard to, you know, non-disclosure agreements. I've, I've why, why did you why did you leave the Lincoln Project last summer? Well, I, look, I mean, I left the Lincoln Project principally because at the time my wife was leaving the White House and, you know, we were we were we needed to spend a little more time with uh, more time on family life. And at the same time, you know, I mean, this wasn't a stated reason at the time. I wasn't really doing that much useful at the Lincoln Project. There was just all this stuff going on without me because, look, I mean, I'm, I'm just a lawyer. I'm not a political consultant. I don't cut ads. I, I throw in, you know, I might email somebody, hey, this is a great idea, but they probably already thought about it. And, you know, I really was sort of out of the loop. They had used me, you know, to talk to donors early on. But at that time, they didn't need me to raise money. The money, you know, they they had a great digital um, money operation because the be their best fundraiser was Donald fucking Trump. And so, you know, what I wasn't doing anything useful and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really satisfying to just be um, a name on the masthead. Um, but but also, you know, so it wasn't it was it was a perfect opportunity to just say, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to step back from that since I'm not really doing that much anyway. And so um, that's that's, you know, that was back in August. Just one, one other point in addition to. The one I made about the NDAs, it, it, the bigger point is, look, there are a lot of people who were associated with the Lincoln Project. I mean, they, they, it became a, a pretty large sized operation at the end with all these people moving out to Utah and running basically a campaign operation for the last two months for the election. And, you know, these people, they... They're not necessarily the ones who might have made a lot of money. They worked real hard and they did it for the right reason. They wanted to beat Donald Trump. And the one of the things that's most upsetting about what the implosion of the Lincoln Project over the past weeks is that, you know, the, their efforts are are being undermined. The justness, the rightness, the good intentions and the hard work are 
are being blemished by all this. And I think those people are owed. I think all the people who gave money to the Lincoln Project are owed a full explanation of what happened so that there are, you know, so that there's clarity. And so that we know, you know, who, what, what happened with Weaver and, and if there's issues with where the money went, that too. Well, to close this out, um, we just got a statement from um, the acquitted former president, Donald Trump. Does it have exclamation points? Uh, No, it doesn't. Has no exclamation points. But I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you a few lines. Get you to respond to close this uh, discussion out, and perhaps uh, the end of the. uh, We can call it the end of the Trump era, uh, in some way. Even though, as we pointed out, um, there'll be plenty of news, legal news, about Donald Trump in the future. It's a sad commentary on our times that one political party in America is given a free pass to denigrate the rule of law, defame law enforcement, cheer mobs, excuse rioters, and transform justice into a tool of political vengeance and persecute blacklists, cancel and suppress all people and viewpoints with whom or which they disagree. I always have and always will be a champion for the unwavering rule of law. This has been yet another phase of the greatest witch hunt in the history of our country. No president has ever gone through anything like it, and it continues because our opponents cannot forget the almost 75 million people, the highest number ever for a sitting president who voted for us just a few short months ago. Um, Our historic, patriotic, and beautiful movement to make America great again has only just begun. Your response, Mr. Conway. Classic Donald Trump. Donald Trump will always be a lying, gaslighting piece of shit. And that's who he is. That's what he would led to January 6th. And he's never going to change. I cannot ima- I cannot imagine a better end to a podcast than uh, the words gaslighting, lying piece of shit. I think we just need to end right there. <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> thank you, George. I really don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> we don't want anything more from you. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Take care. Thanks, right. George.